This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. And I, unlike the last time Stephen and I talked, am not on a 13-mile run. (laughs) That's true. And I, unlike last time that we recorded, am not on location. (laughs) He looks a lot less sweaty, people. I, I feel a lot less sweaty. And I'm a lot less on vacation, unfortunately. So <laughs> I realized that I forgot to say my name. So if this happens to be your first episode of Winning Slowly, no, I am Chris to- Kreitcho. You did say your name, Chris. You did. Did I? Wow. It's that sort okay. of day, listeners. It's that sort of day, listeners. And I have a great big cup of coffee in my hand here, but unfortunately it's decaf. What? That's not even <laughs> coffee. You're not drinking coffee. It's, You're drinking decaffeinated things. It's decaffeinated coffee, and it's delicious, and we're out of caffeinated coffee. Or trust me, today's the kind of day okay. where I would be having some right. caffeinated coffee. Right. As long as we're not doing this by choice. Oh, I mean, I like decaf. Good decaf. Single-origin decafs. Go buy some single-origin decafs from Counterculture People. They're not sponsoring this episode, but I would let them if they wanted to, because I love their coffee. I, I, we could talk this whole episode about whether <laughs> decaf coffee is real coffee or not, but we're not going to do that. <laughs> Instead, what we are going to do is attempt to do some synthetic work, some synthesizing work, pulling together some of the threads we've teased. I'm missing the reference. It's a synthesizer. Oh, oh, I see. (laughs) It's going to be that kind of episode. Great. Maybe I should have gone meadly, meadly, but then you probably would have thought I was a strong bad's guitar. (laughs) Going into Muppet Land or something, yeah. Anyway. No, we're going to try and pull on some of the threads we've exposed in our season so far and see where they lead us as we try to do this work that we've been setting out to do this season from the very outset of constructively engaging questions around the ethics of technology and thinking about how to have a robust and thick and cohesive ethic of technology that is not merely rejection of technology. And sad to say, as we record this, there is a lot of reason very loud to think about the ethics of technology as concerns the internet. There have been multiple mass shootings in the United States over the last couple of days, which were closely connected to internet chat fora. And the specific details and means and mechanisms there are things we're going to leave aside. But you can't get more than a day or two without seeing something more or less serious, rarely as serious as this, but more or less serious about how important the ethics of technology are. And We don't have a full-orbed answer to that yet, but we do think it's really, really important to keep pushing that way. And it's only getting more important, which is to Chris's point, is that it's not like we started this podcast five years ago and then we've been uh, beating the same drum endlessly for no reason just on into the future. (laughs) Things have changed dramatically in the last five years. Yes. And to the point that things that we said, while overarchingly true uh, in season one, are quantifiably and qualitatively different than the situation that we set out to talk about. We were really at the beginning thinking a lot about how technology and religion go together, which is why the Pope's Twitter account was part of (laughs) one of the early episodes. And we're still interested in that. But over the last five years, things have changed to the point where the mandate has grown larger. More people care about 
the direction of technology. Now, they may not care in a religiously oriented context or specifically even a Christian Reformed context. And you, dear listener, may not be of that context uh, either, which is great. Please continue to listen and hear what we have to say, and we'd like you to make a podcast so we can hear (laughs) what you have to say. But the mandate has grown, and the reasons to think about the ethics of technology have become both more clearly defined in that the the problems are obvious now yeah. to where we had to like tell people hey this is going to be a problem and <laughs> now it is a very obvious problem but it's also become less defined in that where does technology stop and like right. somewhere Lewis Mumford is like I did that I told you I'm I'm um and so that's the thing I wish so much dear listeners that I'd been quick enough on the screenshot taking to capture what Stephen looked like cuz he was imitating Stephen Mumford and he just did it again so I got it this time there Hooray. you go there you go so 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 that's the backdrop here not only have you been listening to our episodes but we have been watching things change We've been watching the ways that technology interacts with the world. The world interacts with technology. Individuals and communal groups interact with technology and how that affects the world. And in a lot of ways, we've talked about policy. We've talked about Chattanooga, China, and subsidiarity was 705. And we were talking specifically about how internet gets to you. Yeah. Uh, the, the last two episodes that we did were about how we think about AI in a policy sort of way. Do these prescriptions for policy make sense? And to some end, the policy end of what we do here. I think it's valuable that we keep doing that. Um, but that's not the only thing that we have been doing. Uh, we also have talked about personal and community liturgies in 702 and uh, this sort of overarching idea of uh, of interventions, all of which are less than policy. They are, they are sub-policy. They are more interpersonal or communal. And so those are really the two angles that we have on this season sort of tried to to poke at what we're doing. And in the conversation that's happening right now, those are colliding. Those sorts of what should we do, we being individual people, groups of people, to get policies to change, to get people to not do this, to affect something different than just the status quo. Right. And as much as we think that merely thinking the right thoughts is <laughs> not sufficient. We've talked a lot about those policy points. Right. A lot of times the work we have to do, as we alluded to in that very first episode of this season, and a lot of the work I've been trying to do bits in pieces here and there in my newsletter, sort of in parallel with this season, is learning, trying to reframe thinking, working to define an ethic, a philosophy of technology that is not technologism, that is not solutionism, that is not deeply in the thrall of technology. And the reason I think that's so important, and the reason I keep coming back to it, besides the fact that I'm a nerd, I mean, let's be honest, there's some of that in here, but is because in very large degree, the way we think in the long term does shape what we do. It's not ultimate. 
sometimes we often find ourselves doing the opposite of what we consciously affirm because our contexts or our habits or whatever else lead us both in good ways and bad ways. The the good example is the number of days in my life that I have consciously thought, I really don't want to work out today. I don't think I'm going to work out today. And five minutes later, I'm out the door with my running shoes on because I've built good habits. When we talk about those liturgies of our lives and whatnot, there are ways that that can be good, but equally often at least, they can be bad as well because we just unthinkingly do the thing that comes right. easily, that comes normally, that is ordinary in our context, where what is normal ends up functioning right. normatively. And so as we talked about a bit last season, there's this work of reinterrogating and learning to reshape the ways that we think about things so that over time we build up those those better habits. And a couple threads that I've been pulling on mentally that I think are probably worth continuing to push on, and we've mentioned these, but I think they're really important to continue to push on as we keep thinking about this, are scale and friction. And the scale one in particular, we've alluded to a fair bit. Yeah, we've talked a lot about scale and when you can do it and how you can do it and if you can do it. and Right. And the if continues to be a point of very significant interest to me because I think it's fairly obvious that both many of the great delights and goods of the internet scale age are functions of scale that we can distribute something like this to you, that my blog can reach whomever, that Ben Thompson can run Stratechery and make a very good living by just being really smart on a very narrow niche, and so on. These are all functions of the scale of the internet. But at the exact same time, the scale of quote-unquote communities, and I scare quote those for a reason, on Facebook and Twitter and so on, is also one of the places where things devolve, even as I have found good friendships from those kinds of spaces. There are people that I first encountered on Twitter who are now friends, who are now, I'm going to be staying at the house of such a person in just a couple months because of an interaction that was a weird mix of happening to be in the same coffee shop and having a same piece of software that someone recognized and then tweeting about it later. And we found each other on the internet because of that. And now we're friends. And there are some really amazing things about that. But we should also note that Twitter now and Twitter five years ago or three years ago um, are not the same thing socially. Technically, it's almost exactly the same, which is depressing, but <laughs> socially, they're not the same thing. And so <clears throat> that's one of the challenges when you come to think about scale is not only are things big, but one of the functions of being big at scale of this nature is not necessarily that technically people can move as fast as they used to, because sometimes you can and sometimes you can't, depending on the ways you approach the problem, but socially things can move very fast over technologies. And so right. there are questions about scale that don't have easy answers. So the the first one is, if you have scale, you will have more good things and more bad things. This is the sort of de facto aspect of scale. More of whatever more of it equals all. Yeah. more of it all means more of good stuff and more of bad stuff. And now you would say, well, policy comes to constrain the bad stuff, and that's all well and good. But the point is, the larger the thing gets, the more there are bad things. 
And you have to at some point assess, are the good things that this thing enables the bad things, that they are okay in the context of this good thing is good enough that we will allow this other bad thing to happen. And that's uncomfortable because you have to say like, yes, we will allow bad things to happen because we want good things to happen. And sure, again, policy intervenes in all of this. But as we've seen over the past 10 years, policy has not. So at a de facto level, this is the question of scale on the internet right now is, is it good enough for us to allow this to continue to happen? Because if you want change in any format, in any structure, and left, right, other, there has to actually something has to change. Like you have to do something different and you will lose goods if you choose to eliminate bads. So as a prime example of this that I've been thinking about a bunch – When we look at the social networks, and these are easy punching bags, but I don't mean to use them as a punching bag, because I think very often when you listen to their rhetoric, and in general, my take is, yes, there's CEO speak, and there's how we pitch things to the shareholders speak and all of that. But at the end of the day, when Mark Zuckerberg starts spouting off very idealistic ideological frames. I think he genuinely believes this stuff. I, and I do as well. And the same kind of thing with Jack at Twitter and so on. In fact, I think... I actually am not so sure about Jack at Twitter, <laughs> but we'll continue. Arguably, though, the original sin of Silicon Valley is pretending that original sin doesn't exist. That they've come in, most of these major players, looking only at those goods and assuming that those goods are the primary outcomes or the most important outcomes and leaving aside the negatives, the evils and the ills that are born of these platforms. And you've seen all of these platforms start to try to grapple with this more in the past few years. But but they're not ready. They're not ready to make those big choices. No. And so they're, they're going to have to be constrained in some way. And people are going to have to say like, okay, it's worth it that there can no longer be closed groups on Facebook, <laughs> right? Like the government is going to make a cleverly worded rule that essentially bans closed groups on Facebook if they want to. As, like, as an example. Yeah. 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 If you wanted to do that, like that would be a thing you could do. But you would have to say like, wow, I actually useful, like, well – in the interest of not having bad ones, you're going to have to lose the good ones. Because you don't get to have outrage about bad things if you are maintaining the situation in which the good things come to you. And that's uncomfortable. The question, I think, is then, and Stephen alluded to this a minute ago, so one possible way you could do this is by trying to swing regulations that constrain things in just the right ways. Another approach is to find ways to restrict scale. And... This gets at the other half of the thing I've been chewing on, which is this idea of friction, of reducing the scale of things, reducing some of – and yes, with that, losing some of those goods because you're willing to say these goods aren't worth what they yield. And there are ways in which you could do that that would be more palatable to more people and ways you could do that that would be less palatable to people, I think. Uh, on the purely governmental regulatory sense, saying no to more giant companies merging. Merging? That's fine. Mm-hmm. Yep. Told you it was going to be that kind of day. I'll accept it. Merging? That one's probably acceptable to lots of kinds of folks. But as we've seen with Twitter, you don't have to be the Facebook acquiring WhatsApp and Instagram to end up with some really, really deleterious 
norms on your platform just by dint of having 100 million people there who may or may not have anything in common with each other except the fact that they're on Twitter and they're humans, which are not, you know, the latter of which is kind of a big deal, but the former of which may hide the latter. Well, that's if, true. if the only exposure you have to someone is an avatar screaming something you don't like, that tends to diminish your perception of their humanity and vice versa. And so, well, and there's, there's a lot of bots on Twitter too, which is part of the problem, but that's, yeah, there's that. There are also a lot of non-humans on Twitter. That's not, that's a non-incidental part. Um, (laughs) True story. But to the point of this specific point. Right. The, the question then is simply whether the goods of scale And this is a question that I am increasingly skeptical about the answer to. The goods of scale, the way that scale has been understood, this mass community, this mass engagement, this mass interaction, those do have good things occasionally. I can tweet. I I don't tweet anymore, as you know, if you've listened to the last few episodes. But I can tweet at someone whom I do not know and possibly get their attention. And that might go interesting places. And that might even have good outcomes for each of our careers or what we're right. working on or things like that. Right. But is that worth the cost? And I'm just not sure anymore. I am also not sure. But I think there are ways beyond shut it down that you can go about this. Which, to be fair, like if somebody like pr- put forward a proposal for why we should shut down Facebook and it had good arguments, I'd be like, argument accepted. You know, like I'm, we're not out of the realm of possibility where I'm like, we don't need Facebook. Right. Now, I think we would have to have rules. Otherwise, Facebook would be reconstituted elsewhere as Neo Facebook. Immediately. But it's the, the, the thing I'm thinking about is that one of the reasons that scale has been so bad is that there's a, a fallacy that growth is uncontainable, but moder, yep. but moderation is untenable. So, Oh my gosh, things are just growing out of control. It's we can't do anything to stop it, nor do we want to. But then when something bad happens, people are like, "Why didn't you stop it?" They're like, "Well, because it was growth. Like that's how it worked. We didn't want to stop it." And then you get into like people are like, "Well, we didn't want to censor anybody." I'm like, "Homie, one, you're not a government, so that's not censoring. <laughs> Two, the fact that you're not quote unquote censoring is is irrelevant to." this particular problem like it it the problem still exists whether or not you didn't want to censor it or did want to censor it but couldn't or x y and z is irrelevant to the fact that the problem is still happening um now maybe that's not the angle you want to pursue and it's relevant in that way that you have a principled argument against why you don't want to censor other than like yo first amendment what up but and all our german friends are like we don't have a first amendment i know i know (laughs) you don't have a second amendment either but that's the different story so the um, so the the thing here is that there are ways of meeting scale at scale, right? There are ways that you can say like we're gonna set a keyword moderation on this thing, and if your uh, if your post has any version of this particular type of word, it just won't get posted. The end. Like that's a thing you can do. You're legally able to do that. Right. In fact, in some ways, uh, now that we've established that the uh, like even the president can't block people that he wants to because of his public <laughs> public nature. Like the the norms that we put forward are are starting to be adjudicated. 
So we can actually get to a point where we can say, like, yes, this is legal and adjudicatable. You can do this. Like, if you, it's not right. against the First Amendment, or maybe it is. We're going to find out. But you have to actually do that first before we find out. So th- those sorts of court cases can happen, and we've seen them happen, and more of them need to happen. And it is a bummer in some ways that we need to rely so much on a legal system to do things that we could otherwise do ethically, but that's where we're at. And this is sort of the the whole gist of this particular episode of the podcast is that's where we're at. Yeah, there's a, a real sense in which we've gotten to a point where we've allowed ourselves to get to that point. And I think one thing that's worth asking, in addition to what we do with where we are today, what do we do with Facebook? What do we do with Twitter? What do we do with anything else that has scaled massively like this? Is what do we do with the next thing that's trying to hyperscale? Because as much as Facebook seems like it's going to be around forever, the reality is it probably won't. Just by dint of statistics, things that have been around 10 years, the likelihood they're going to be around in another 10 years is lower than you might think. And the likelihood that they're going to be around in 50 is almost none. And even if they were super long-lived, the Roman Empire fell apart eventually, too. It does. Right. Things end. We are the Vikings coming for the western (laughs) half of the Facebook Roman Empire. That's right. (laughs) They didn't have any ethics at all, though, so this breaks down, like, immediately. Really quickly. But their boats were fast. Uh, I summon a trickster god to (laughs) wreak havoc on Facebook. Uh, That's... Wow, that was way farther than that metaphor was going to go. I was mostly going, (laughs) okay, so what are we going to do about the next thing that is in Facebook? Thor's hammer. (laughs) Since we're on Norse mythology and the Vikings, here we go. My daughter may or may not have been reading a book of Norse mythology yesterday, so I do have this front of mind. And she was very excitedly telling me about trickster gods and things. And I was There's a lot of of them in Norse mythology. (laughs) So I think... I think we have to start asking that question. Uh, As communities, when something comes along that promises us these goods, how do we say, yeah, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice. Well, to quote a former president of the United States, you can't fool me twice. (laughs) (laughs) I would hope that we can. I would hope so. Right. How do we do that? How do we say these goods aren't worth it? This is a lie. These goods seem better than they really are, and they come at too high a cost. How do we say that the ring of power looks really, really attractive? And yeah, we could win the war with the might of the ring, but in the end, we would just have become the Dark Lord ourselves. How do we do that work? And some of it's having this conversation. Like in, In a very real sense, I think that just doing this work is actually a small I mean, we have a couple hundred listeners. You're all amazing. But Stephen and I are under no misapprehensions that we're changing the world with our tiny little podcast here. Unless any of you are writing American policy and then like, please let us know. We'd love to talk with you. We have uh, some ideas for you. Yeah, right. But we do think that Local, I take state, it or federal. I don't really care. Local, state, or federal. It's fine. <laughs> I, I do take back what I just said, though. I don't think we're Large corporations changing the also, world. Any of you? That's Steven, fine as well. Stephen. <laughs> we're not changing the world in the way that people often think of changing the world, but this is the point. So, so much of where we've gotten is this notion that the way you change the world and the only way to change the world is to be huge. 
and to make these massive levels of changes. And yeah, sometimes world events happen that way, but usually world events happen that way. This is the thesis of our entire podcast for five and a half years running. Those big, huge changes happen as the result of a lot of small faithfulnesses in the same direction. And so in a very real sense, yes, we are actually changing the world. And no, we're not changing the world in the sense of painting an entirely new reality for all citizens of the global internet economy. But that's almost entirely the point in a very important way. We change the world by faithfulness where we are with the people who live around us and or to whatever extent through publishing a book or publishing a blog or what have you. And those choices need to be carefully considered too. But through being able to make those small changes and through being willing to lean into the fact that maybe the biggest and most important way I change the world is by changing diapers in the church nursery or changing my daughter's clothes when she had an accident because she was way too distracted playing or whatever. Like These things are tiny, mundane, incredibly boring, so frustrating things in so many ways. And I have them very front of mind because they're things Stephen and I have been talking about in our personal lives at times of late. But I think a huge part of any really robust and thick and right ethics of tech has to invert that mentality, has to say that the way we change the world, the way we move toward a healthier view of all these things is by remembering that Twitter actually just doesn't matter that much. And one of the best things about being off of Twitter for the last six weeks or whatever it's been now is it's a great reminder that, guess what? Being off Twitter is fine. We lived for millennia without Twitter And it's fine. I can tell you, I'm off now, and I don't miss it, and it's fine. And so often we feel that sense that we have to be there. We have to be in this technology. We have to be using this thing, or we're somehow getting left behind or left out. And there are real ways socially in which that does and can happen. Not being on Facebook can be really hard in certain communal contexts. But the more of us who do this, the less true that is. That's that's what, yeah. So there are literally things that you miss out on because mm-hmm. Chris's reach on Twitter was much larger than mine just because of the ways that he used social media, which means that right. we're not going to grow this podcast listenership as fast as we used to, just de facto. <laughs> which was not very fast. Which was not that fast, <laughs> but just de facto. So there right. are things that, there are real things. But going back to the beginning of the episode is that we feel like that's okay. We feel yeah. like it's important enough to not be creating one more reason to go onto Twitter, cr- not creating one more reason to go on Facebook, whatever it is, is worth the the challenge of being potentially more obscure. And I think I think one of the ways that it's important to think about this is that the 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 nuclear bomb was a thing that we used twice, we being Americans. And as a result of using that to some extent we don't use it now there are policy ways in which we use the threat of it and that's a completely different conversation about just war and real politic and all that but de facto for the last i don't know 60 some odd years now we haven't we haven't used 70 odd years 45 we haven't used a nuclear bomb in war right see episode 6.08 right and the Part of the reason this is, is because the people who are in charge of firing the nuclear bomb know that it is 
hugely destructive. But partially, it's because there's a whole lot of people in this country that do not want us to even have, much less use, nuclear bombs. And they, in very many ways, from books to lobbying to local organizations to uh, resistance groups to sitting outside various dumps and saying, why aren't we fixing this? All these different ways that people in small or big ways, teaching their children that nuclear bombs are bad, etc. All of these ways constrain the nuclear bomb. Now you would say, no, they really don't because really all it takes is one person to push the button. But that's the difference between technocracy, this idea that the only thing that matters is the technical application of how the actual technical technology, the actual (laughs) technology works versus a broader social ethic of how we think about and interpret and constrain or enable technologies. And so I think, yes, like textbooks saying that the bomb was bad and we need to never do that again are part of the way that this happens. And so I think we have got to reach a point and you know we you can go back and listen to the episodes of this podcast i've mentioned several times like is this the point is this it um and i'm going to do that again is this it like is this the point where people finally are fed up enough that they're going to say like okay now it's time to get down to business and figure out this technology stuff because we finally made it over the hump where the goods are not so good that the the evils right. can be canceled out i don't right. think we're quite there yet because people haven't really made it to the point where they can say like i would rather not have this than have continued badnesses we have not gotten there yet we're still in the like what if we can reform them phase and like what yeah. if we could reform them let's try that like even marginal constraints would be better than the literally the almost no nothing constraints. that we have yeah. right now but to the point where it has obviously become a problem, not just for us sitting here in tech podcasts, but literally if you look at my Facebook, if you talk to people in my church, if you talk to people who are around you, like things have gotten bad out here. And and the way that I know that is because other people who aren't tech ethicists think it's gotten bad out here. Right. And I think there's hope there for of helping people to do better. And I think one of the things I want to come back to maybe in our next episode or possibly not because that may be an interview. Keep your ears peeled. We will see. What's up with the peeling thing? I've, I've never really liked. I've never actually understood that either. Never really liked that metaphor. I don't want to peel my eyes or ears or anything. Really uncomfortable. I mean, keeping your ear to the ground is at least a little bit more understandable. Like you might be able to hear an earthquake. Maybe Keep your eyes open. Keep your ears listening yeah yeah <laughs> listen for earthquakes is what we're saying but literally actually One of that's the what things we're telling I want... people to metaphorically do is listen for earthquakes <laughs> and they're like right here and people are finally listening Hooray. that's the name of the podcast episode here we are <laughs> i think we have to do some work to think about how we seek some of these goods because i do agree with ben thompson by and large that you can't put this genie back in the bottle. There, you, you can't go back to a world before the wheel at some point. You can't go back to a world before fire. Now, I say that. Actually, there are some places in the world where people discovered and then lost fire. We have pretty good evidence of yeah. that. But at, the metaphor, I think, stands. In general, tech cultures don't seem able to... We, we have not, for all of the point we made both here a few minutes ago and back in 608, we've chosen not to use nuclear weaponry. But we still have nuclear them. Nuclear weaponry. But we still have the bombs. 
And likewise, I think it's probably fair to say, we're not going to just shut the internet down and walk away. So we need an ethic that makes the internet and the kinds of tools we build on it subservient to the good, the common good that we're all seeking. And that means in part thinking a about what kinds of tools have what kinds of effects as we've been trying to do for five and a half years now, therefore B what tools to build and what tools not to build and also see what kinds of problems simply are not amenable to being solved by tools. And in many ways it's that latter most one that has been lacking even in the emerging conversation and to some degree consensus about the problems that confront us. Except Alan Jacobs against solutionism. <laughs> yes. Boom. And well, there's a reason we like Alan Jacobs here, even when we don't always agree with him, even yeah. when he makes Stephen grumpy and sad. Yeah. I mean, because his whole essay was basically saying that his book was sort of not exactly accurate. So <laughs> we're not having this argument again right now, Stephen. <laughs> but that's what the essay said. <laughs> solutionism is dying. He said that wouldn't happen. Sort of, sort of. I think we have to do that that work of saying, here are better kinds of tools to be built, and how do we build them, as I said in the second most recent issue of my newsletter, in such a way that they don't scale like Facebook, but they scale in usability so that anybody can use them as appropriate without coupling those things together. But also look at some of them and say, maybe we just shouldn't be trying to use a a piece of technology of whatever sort to quote unquote solve this particular problem. And maybe the combination of those kinds of things can get us to a better, healthier approach to all of life, because right. that's really what ethics is. And technology isn't always has been an essential component of how we have to grapple with that right. because humans are technology creating beings. Right. And so I think it is, at the at this specific moment, which is a very odd and specific moment where things seem to be shifting mm-hmm. and things seem to be shifting man, neither of us can talk today. Things seem to be shifting in a way where people want to say, "Okay, what can we do about this? How can we make it so that this doesn't happen in the same quantities, in the same amounts, in the same frequencies?" whether that's bullying or mass shootings or revenge porn or whatever it is. We're in a moment where people are putting forward solutions, personal and uh, and political, to all of those questions. But I, what Chris and I are most interested in and what this podcast will continue to keep doing is not be reactionary. We're not interested yeah. in reactionaryism. We want policies. So we're going to keep saying, like, remember that time in 303 where we said that we should do this thing? Now is the time <laughs> we should do this thing. Um, yes. Now is the time. But we're not going to dedicate a whole season to, like, how we should fix Facebook because we've already talked about that. We want to look at the future, like, what's coming next? That's why we talked about AI. AI is not a fundamental concern of this podcast per se, but it's a thing that is happening and that will continue to happen. And so we want to talk about how do we do that? Yeah. And so in five or 10 years, when people are ready to talk about that, then we're, we're going to say, remember that time in 706 and 707? Like, And so we don't say that to be jerks. Actually, we're jerks. We want to be jerks. <laughs> Nerds and jerks. Nerds and jerks. Nerdy jerks. Um, we don't say that to be jerks, but we say that's what this podcast wants to do. We want to stay out in front of it instead yeah. of being part of 
the 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 mess of of negotiating right. your way to whatever end you achieve, be it personally, politically, or whatever. And out in front of it in part so that we can, in whatever very small ways, nudge the direction that it ends up taking. Indeed. And I, again, we don't have any illusions that that's going to be some massive effect. But Unless you're a policy person. <laughs> if you're a policy person. Sorry, Chris. Sorry, For Chris. those of you who do listen and do give us your time and attention, which we continue to value and appreciate. We do. We, we hope that we can think with you toward not making some of the same kinds of mistakes again and toward avoiding some of the mistakes that, hey, guess what? People were actually calling this stuff in 2002 and 2003 and nobody was listening. And maybe, to some small degree, a few more people can listen this time around. And at least for our own communities, things can go a little better. Right. So next time we'll talk – next time we'll taco. That's what we're going to do. We're going to We're going to taco. The music, It'll be a very crunchy podcast. <laughs> the music at the beginning of the episode was used by permission. Please don't use it without permission. Thanks, as always, to everyone who sponsors the show, including Nathaniel Blaney. If you'd like to sponsor the show, we're on Patreon as Winning Slowly, and we're on Cash.me as Dollar Sign, Sign winning, winning Slowly. Uh, I actually have a job where it requires me to check Facebook uh, and teach people how to use Facebook, which is a subject for another day. So <laughs> I'm I'm still on Facebook at Winning Slowly, as well as Twitter at Winning Slowly, and you can send us an email, hello at winningslowly.org, and we will both receive it. Please, please send your thoughts. Yes, indeed. And tacos. And send tacos. Do send tacos. We will eat your tacos. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.